Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. It's good to have you back. I'm glad you're here, alive, not projectile vomiting, uh, all that stuff. That's good, good stuff. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think about um, our serve teams and the way that they bless our church, um, it is significant. I was um, hunting this past fall. Let me correct that. I was camping with a gun this past fall. Um, and we had headed up an unnamed river a long ways from home, required a jet boat because a lot of rivers in Alaska require that. You know, they're all silty. You can't see the bottom. You don't know when it gets shallow unless you're from the area. And then you know exactly where all the channels are. And we're actually on our way out. Um, and frustrations get pretty high towards the end of a hunt if you've not shot anything. In fact, you're really tempted to just shoot each other at some point, like, I gotta pull this trigger. Um, and, but we're on our way out, and um, unnamed river with an unnamed hunting buddy, um, and I won't tell you who was driving the boat, but his name wasn't Jonathan. Um, and uh, we hit a sandbar, gravel bar to be specific. And we didn't just hit it, like, you know, sometimes you, you hit it and you can get off real easy. And then other times, you're like 10 feet in the air and you don't know how you got there. Um, Like we hit it so hard that we were not, I bought one of those little survival shovels, you know? (laughs) They're like, they show the videos, they can do anything, right? They're like, you know, gutting a moose with them. I got my little survival shovel out. This is how bad it was. And I am laying in the quarter inch of water, um, digging underneath the boat, trying to get it to just have enough water so the two of us could push it. We unloaded everything from the, you know, the, all of it's out right there because the water's not deep enough to take it anywhere. And, and we're trying, and for the life of us, could not get it off of this gravel bar. It was a nightmare, total nightmare. In fact, I'm having nightmares right now thinking about how much of a nightmare it actually was. And frustrations are running super high. And and as we're there thinking, we're here forever. I'm going to have to figure out how to broadcast from here to do my job back in Wasilla. This is home. We're going to start building something right now. Let's set the tent up. This is where we're living. And and we see a boat come cruising up the river towards us. uh, And it's a few locals from the uh, village nearby. And of course, they didn't go the way we went. <laughs> Apparently, there's a channel. <laughs> nice, they stuck it on a map. Uh, but the, and they just come cruising around, and they and they see us, and you can tell, like they've seen the white guys stuck on the sandbar <laughs> many, many times before. And uh, as they come swinging around, it's four young adults with two moose in their boat <laughs> floating. And I fully expect them to just go blazing on by. But no, no, they look over at us like, 
here you go, the international signal for, are you an idiot? Do you need help? Um, and, uh, and we're like, yes, please. And, and so they just swing in. They gently pull their boat up on the sandbar, you know, so they can push it off easily in a moment. And they all four, two guys, two girls, all four get out and come over and they begin to help us. Now, they did the same thing that we were trying to do, right? We're going to put a log under the bow, see if we could push it up on that log and then roll it over the log. And they did all the same things that we were trying to do. But I don't know if you know this. It's a whole lot easier with six people than it is with two. Because things are usually better together. When we jump in together to accomplish something, the task is much more manageable. The attitudes are much better. All of the things are because we're better together. In fact, uh, Andrew Carnegie said this, teamwork is the ability to work together toward a common vision, to direct individual accomplishments toward organizational objectives. It is the fuel that allows common people to attain uncommon results. Or for those of us who are more sports-minded, Vince Lombardi, the famous race car driver, I'm just kidding, <laughs> Vince Lombardi said this, individual commitment to a group effort, that is what makes a team work. Individual commitment to a group effort, that's what makes a team actually Work And when I think about our team here at Church on the Rock, um, it isn't just staff. In fact, it isn't even primarily staff. It's people who say, I'm willing to jump in and serve, to volunteer. I want to give you some numbers here to look at. Um, This is pretty astounding. Um, Each and every week, um, we have serve team members across all four campuses who are jumping in to our services and serving. Everything from worship to children's to greeters to security teams to media to cafe to ushers, a whole bunch of roles that are filled each and every week. In fact, if you were to look across all of our campuses, for each service that happens on a Sunday, roughly 94 people are serving. A lot of people. 94 people serving. Now, if you took 94 people and you said they were serving for an hour and a half, which is roughly our service time, and you took that hour and a half by 94, you got 141 hours per service that people are serving. There are eight services across all of our campuses each week. Eight services. So 141 hours by eight services is 1,128 hours served every Sunday. And if you took those hours and you were to say over the course of a year, 52 Sundays in a year, that 1,128 hours by 52 is 58,656 hours served every year here at Church on the Rock. Uh, People who just jump in and give of their time and their energy and their resources. Now, there's some debate, but the average salary in the state of Alaska, and I know as soon as you hear this, you're going to be like, well, I don't know who makes that, but it's $29 an hour. I know that's what Heather's paying all of her people. Um, So the average salary is $29 an hour. And if you were to take those hours served, and you were to take that average salary, it's somewhere around $1,701,024 in hours served every year by you people who are joining serve teams and ministering to the body 
of Christ. And this isn't even counting Tuesday night worship practices, Wednesday night youth group, Wednesday's Women's Connect, life group leaders, or Thrifters Rock volunteers, which is a whole nother thing. And so with that in mind, if you are on a serve team, either weekly or monthly here at Church on the Rock, if you're on a serve team, would you just stand to your feet real quick? Go ahead. Stand on up. Stay standing once you stand. Yep, yep. Keep, keep, yep, yep. There we go. I want to read this passage of Scripture. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippians. And, um, and here's what he has to say. I, I made it fit us, so I changed all the eyes to we's, okay? Philippians 1, 3 through 6. Every time we think of you, we give thanks to our God. Whenever we pray, we make our requests for you all, uh, for all of you with joy, for you have been our partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And we are certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Thank you for serving at Church on the Rock. Would you give it up for these guys? Gals, you can be seated. Now listen, there are all kinds of ways that people serve, and we've been talking about generosity over the past several weeks, right? There's financial service, there's physical service, there are all kinds of ways that people serve. But here's what I really want you to understand, is that when we partner together, we can accomplish far more than we ever dreamed possible. In fact, when you partner your talents with their financial resources and his time and her witnessing, evangelism, gifting, when those things are all combined, they make a huge difference in the world. I, I took some numbers. I just gathered um, three NGOs that we partner with at some level, non-government organizations, Christian NGOs that we partner with at some level. And if you were to just take those three NGOs, over the past year, they have provided food, emergency relief, clean water to over 13,500,000 people. And we're part of that. We just joined with them. That's just a fraction of the ministries that we partner with. But your generosity, your giving, your prayer is multiplied across those platforms in ways that maybe you never even get to see the outcomes or the results. But it's the beauty of being together in the mission of the gospel. Now, what's in your lunchbox? I know, you were thinking wallet, so was I. What's in your lunchbox? Generosity is more than giving. It's giving with God's intention. Generosity is more than giving. It's giving with God's intent. In fact, biblical generosity, biblical generosity would be defined as joyful, sacrificial generosity. If generosity is simply modeling what God is like or what Christ was like, then ultimately it's joyful, sacrificial generosity. In fact, the words for giving and generosity are two entirely different words in the scriptures. In fact, their meaning is entirely different because one denotes an attitude or a posture of the heart and the other is an action. And the action of giving could or could not be generous. 
from God's perspective. In fact, it could actually be stingy. You could give, but give from a bitter heart or give withholding. Generosity actually is an attitude or posture of the heart because in reality, I could be sacrificial without being joyful. Have you ever done that? Oh, come on. If you're a parent, you've done that, right? If, if you're a spouse, you've done that. Like, you could actually be sacrificial. I could lay down my life. I could be willing to do this and yet not be joyful at all about it. And yet for Jesus, it's for the joy set before him. He endures the shame of the cross. I could also um, be joyful without actually being sacrificial, right? You met those people who were just like, they are the happiest people you've ever met, and yet they don't do anything. Maybe that's why they're happy. I don't know. Uh, but, but you could be joyful, but not actually be sacrificial. And you could also give without being joyful or sacrificial. In fact, the amount of money you give doesn't actually determine whether you're generous or not. Two people could give the exact same amount of money. And for one, it could be no sacrifice at all. And for the other, it could be wildly sacrificial. But our motivations matter more than our money actually does. In reality, as you understand the message of the gospel, as you understand what Christ has done for you and for I, then we love because he first loved us. We give because he first gave his son. We serve because Jesus first served us. It's actually a response to, not in order to receive from. In fact, I am not generous so that I can be approved of by God. I'm generous because I already have been approved of by God. In that ultimate sense that he has said, I've made you righteous before me through the work of my son, that I get to stand before the sovereign God of all the universe, not because of my own merit or my own good deeds, but simply because he made a way to make it possible. He was wildly, scandalously generous with me. I'm not generous so that I can be approved of by God. It doesn't improve my standing before him. That's settled in the person of Jesus, or we're talking about a different religion altogether. I'm generous because I've already been approved of by God. I'm not generous because God needs me. The word need does not apply to God. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He doesn't need anything. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Everything is his. He created all of it. He wouldn't tell you and I if he needed something. I'm not generous because God needs me. I'm generous because God met me when I needed him the most. It's a response to God. And our motivation matters. Now, maybe you've wondered, like I've wondered in the past, well, what difference can my small act of obedience or my small act of generosity really make? Uh, I've got 15 bucks, or I've got 150 bucks, or I've got 1,500 bucks. But in the scope of what needs to happen in the world, how much difference can this little sacrifice make? In Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, there's one of two encounters that are almost identical. In fact, people often ask the question, are these the same story? They are not the same story. The details are entirely different. They're included in the same book. 
And they're actually for two entirely different groups of people. But Matthew 14 is the first account. Matthew 14, verse 15. That evening, the disciples came to him, Jesus, and said, This is a remote place, and it is already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, in order to fully understand the context of what's happening in this Matthew 14 account, you also need to look at John. Because John gives us a little detail that I think is a really important detail in John chapter 6. So John chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus, turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Don't you love when those questions come? Okay, I've got a question for you. Can you tell me who did this? This is a question in my house all the time. Which one of you ate all of the cookies that were on this counter? Not me, not me, not me. Okay, you know we only put in our Vivint security system to watch you. It's not to keep our house safe from burglars. It's there so I can go pull footage, right? It's amazing. I, I have no idea if I can even pull footage from, like, but my girls are like, I did it! <laughs> okay, good. Someday they're going to call my bluff. In fact, they may do it now that they just heard this sermon. Um, uh, but, so he's asking Philip a question that he already knows the answer to. But he's, he's not doing it to be cruel. He's doing it to test Philip because we need to be tested. In fact, things that are left untested, untried, are often unreliable. He already knew what was, he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, which is one of those statements, you know, when you're talking about feeding 5,000 people. All the other disciples are probably like, good job. We're almost there, buddy. <laughs> like, I've got an idea, but then as soon as he says it, he realizes this is a terrible idea. Uh, five loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Yeah, that's a great question. You should have asked that before you said that. Uh, verse 18, Matthew, here's what Jesus says. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples, who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. This was Thursday, Thanksgiving. Like, they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. I don't know why they like list exactly how many men were there, except that men can eat a lot, apparently. Like, that's astounding that they were all full. Here's what's interesting to me. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he hands it to the disciples. When he hands it to the disciples, they're now responsible to take this little chunk and go and begin distributing it. It requires some faith on their part. I'm going to just start handing it out and we'll see what happens, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get about two people into the first row and we're going to be done and we're not. And they just keep handing it out and handing it out and handing it out. And when they're all done for this primarily Jewish crowd, they take up 12 baskets full because the bread of life has enough for all of them.
Now, they leave this scene, and this is what's extraordinary to me. I mean, how many of you would love to have been there on that day? Like, how many of you would love for that to happen in your refrigerator today? <laughs> like, <laughs> hallelujah. Um, uh, but they see this miraculous provision and all the underlying things that are going on here that Jesus is communicating in this moment. And they leave this moment, and Jesus is supposed to be joining them in the boat to head across the water in order to do some more ministry in another region. And so they jump in the boat. Jesus isn't coming, and so they take off without him, and a storm kicks up on the sea. And I don't know if you've ever been in a storm at sea, but it can be terrifying. And they are terrified. These, many of whom are former fishermen, are now caught in the midst of this storm, and they are quite concerned. And in the middle of the night, Jesus comes out walking on the water, because he's Jesus. He comes out walking on the water. And I've heard lots of, if you've ever watched like um, the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, and they're like, mysteries of the Bible revealed. And they try and describe how it appeared as though he was, you know, walking on the water. It was a really shallow spot, you know, a spit that was going out underwater. And Jesus was just walking out on that. And they thought he was walking on the water, which is really extraordinary if you ask me, because when Peter almost drowns in that inch of water. <laughs> anyways. Peter comes out, walks on the water to Jesus. All of that happens right then and there. And in that moment, they experience this miraculous work of the Lord. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and they stop instantly. They go across. They do ministry. He heals the sick. That are, many of the sick just touched the hem of his garment and were instantaneously healed. He's going to cast out some demons. I mean, it's been a pretty good day of ministry at this point. And, and now, Matthew 15 just one chapter later, but it's probably a span of a couple of months between these two events. Matthew 15. Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, after, by the way, he's been preaching for three days, which I'm a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. Like, he's been preaching for three days. The people have been there. They've eaten up all the food that they have. And now Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. And I was like, me too, you've been preaching for three days. Um, you're going to land this plane like in closing for the third day. Um, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. And the disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a large crowd? And Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? And they replied, seven loaves and a few small fish. Does this sound familiar to anyone? I'm thinking, does this sound familiar disciples? Like, you just had this same event. What do you have? Oh, we've got some loaves and some fish. We've never had this situation before. <laughs> Except for like two months ago. Like, and in between that, Jesus does done some insanely miraculous things. And here they are again in this exact same scenario. So Jesus had the people sit. He thanked God for the fish and for the bread. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute. And everyone ate until they were full. And there were seven baskets left over this time. And 4,000 men plus women and children were fed to full. Again. This time they had more food. They had seven loaves and a few fish. This time they had more food. 
There were less people, and yet they still had little to no faith. They'd seen more miracles than they had seen previously, and yet in this moment, they find it hard to believe again that God would provide. And here's what I've discovered over the years is even when God takes our little and he turns it into a lot, it can be hard to believe that he'd do it again. But God delights in doing extraordinary things with our limited resources in impossible situations. He actually delights. He looks for those opportunities. He delights in doing extraordinary things with our limited resources in seemingly impossible situations. In fact, I think he often allows us to enter into those situations to give us an opportunity yet again to believe him for more than we thought was possible. In fact, this is a common theme throughout the scriptures. If you were to look at um, the situation where Moses is called by God to go and deliver the nation of Israel, to go and deliver the Hebrews from captivity under Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world, and Moses is like, you got the wrong guy, I got a stuttering problem, like, you don't want to send me, I can't do this. And, And so what am I supposed to say? This is the question that Moses asked, what do I tell Pharaoh when I get there? And here's what the Lord says back to him. Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a shepherd's staff. It's the stick that I've been carrying around in the wilderness while I'm taking care of sheep instead of being back at the palace where I was born because I've chosen to follow you, because I've chosen to obey you. And the Lord says, what is that in your hand? He says, this is my shepherd's staff. And the Lord says to him, I want you to throw it on the ground. And he throws it on the ground and it turns into a serpent. He says, now I want you to pick it up. And he picks it up and it turns back into a staff. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to tell him, I am has sent me to you. Let my people go. But God simply asks Moses, what do you have? Well, I have this staff, then give it to me and watch what I could do with a simple stick. In fact, if you were to fast forward from there to Gideon and his army, (laughs) I mean, Gideon is a young man who does not think he's qualified to do what the Lord is calling him to do. And in fact, here's what he says in Judges 6, verse 15. Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my whole family. And God's like, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Only five loaves and two fish? We'll nail this. Like if you would give it to me, who you are, your identity, however small you think you are, the smaller, the better, because I want you to see what I'm going to do. He puts together an army, and God's like, no, 20,000 is way too many. Say, if any of you are scared, you don't have to come. (laughs) So he says, if any of you are scared, you don't have to come. And two-thirds of the army leaves. There's 10,000 or so left now, and the Lord says, oh, that's still way too many. We need to whittle this down. He brings it all the way down to 300 soldiers. Oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for because he delights to take our limited resources and accomplish extraordinary things. Or if you fast forward to the widow who meets the prophet Elijah and she's in a dire situation. Her husband has died. The creditors have come. They're going to take her home and everything from her and put her children in slavery. And she has nothing. And the prophet says to her, well, what do you have 
in your house? And she says, I have a small amount of oil, enough to make one more cake. And he says, then do it. Make a cake for me and then go and get as many jars as you can because I'm going to take that little bit of oil and I'm going to make provision for you in order to provide for your whole household. And she does. And the widow's oil happens. Or the loaves and the fish. There's a recipe that is at work here. There's a principle that's at work here in the heart and the mind of God, and it's this. If I am willing to offer what little I do have to God, he is able to accomplish more than I ever could with it on my own. If I would yield it to him, I mean, imagine you're the young boy who gives up his lunch. Like, well, I guess this is it. Here you go, spread this out with everybody, and yet he's willing to give up his lunch for the mission that Jesus is calling him to, and and end result is that he sees his lunch feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. If I'm willing to offer what little I do have, what's in my hand currently to God, he is able to accomplish more than I ever could with it on my own. And God is usually asking this question, what will you surrender to me rather than what do you think you need from me? He's often asking, we love to tell him what we need, right? Like, let's spend this prayer time just letting you know what all of my needs are. And often he's saying, but what do you already have in your hand? What do you already have in your possession? What do you already have in your skill set? What do you already have that you're willing to yield to me? Maybe it's relationships that you're in and you've just not been willing to yield them to the Lord to the point that you would tell them about the message of the gospel, that you would ask them if they've ever met the person of Jesus Christ. And yet he put you in that relationship. It's something he's put in your possession. Are you willing to yield that relationship? Your financial resources, your skills, your talents to him. He's often asking, what will you yield to me so that you could see what I could do with it? And we're always wanting to ask, what will you give me so that I can do something with it? But he delights in taking our seemingly small and insignificant resources and accomplishing extraordinary things with them when they're yielded. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, I believe describes most of us in this room. I know it describes Heather and I. (laughs) Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of the Lord. How many of you are like, that just described me. Like, I would not have been considered wise. I would not have been considered the most gifted or the most talented in the world. I wasn't wealthy, and yet God wants to use you and me. It's what he's delighted in doing from the moment he called the first disciples that no other rabbi would have ever called to come and follow him, a couple of fishermen who weren't smart enough to make it through the education system in Jewish culture. And he says, hey, you, you're the perfect candidates because everyone's going to be shocked and amazed that you're worth anything. But he sees the value. And he sees that when you step into the purposes that he has for you, the glory will actually go to him and not to us. 
he delights in using the simple things to confound the wise. Which brings me to kingdom core math. <laughs> Welcome, Frankie. Put that in there just for you. I was listening to a comedian recently. He was talking about having to learn common core math with his kids. He said it's a... He said the fundamental principle of common core math is that you need to use one full sheet of paper for every problem. Um, he said, I'd be reading through it with my daughter, and every now and then I'd be like, oh, there's real math. And like, just do that up here, and you'll be done with the problem. But no, there's like this long way that you have to go. He said, it's like when someone comes to your house and they say, uh, hey, I'm over for a visit. Can I come in? Well, you can't come in this door. Why? Is it messed up? Is there something wrong? Something you don't, no, 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 none of that. There's just a new way that we're entering our house. I want you to come and ring this doorbell, but then I need you to go all the way around the house, through the gate, come around back and come in that door. But I just want to come in your house. Yes, but that's the way we're coming in our house now instead of just, anyways. There's some principles, though, in kingdom core math and the biblical principle of multiplication and division. I'll give you an example. Joshua 23, verses 9 through 11 for the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Now listen to this. Each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy, for the Lord your God fights for you just as he has promised. This idea that if one could put a thousand to flight, then two could put 10,000? Right? It doesn't make any sense, but it's God math. The principle is this, that when we battle together, when we partner with the Lord and with one another, when we battle together, our strength is actually multiplied. And when we work together, our load is actually divided. It's easier to carry. When we weep together, our grief is divided. When we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, when we celebrate together, our joy is actually multiplied. It's a lot more fun to celebrate together than it is alone. Our joy is multiplied. And when we're generous together, our impact is multiplied. When we bring our resources together to accomplish God's purposes, they are actually multiplied in his kingdom in ways that we could not multiply them. I've shared this with you before, but several years ago, I was in uh, Kolkata, India. Um, and this was really my first trip. In fact, I believe I was the youth pastor at Church on the Rock at the time, and Pastor David allowed me to go for three weeks. <laughs> and I was looking into human trafficking issues specifically. And so I started in Sri Lanka, went from Sri Lanka to Thailand, went from Thailand to South India, went from South India up to Kolkata. And as we were in Kolkata, I wanted to go by and visit Mother Teresa's house for the dying and destitute. And so I went and visited there. And by the time I had gotten to Kolkata, I had just seen so many disturbing and heartbreaking things. I stood on a bridge in uh, Thailand on the border with Myanmar, with Burma. I stood on a bridge there. I was reading a book at the time on human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, and realized that roughly 100,000 girls a year are trafficked across that particular border. I was in Sonagachi, which is the largest brothel sector in the world in northern India. 10,000 Indian men, I watched them stream into that brothel sector every single night 
to buy sex from these women who had been trafficked into the country. I'd just seen so many things. I felt so hopeless. Like, who could do anything about this issue? Like, I could spend the rest of my life engaging at the highest possible level that my gifting and skill would allow me and still not make a drop in the bucket. I was pretty discouraged, and I was there at Mother Teresa's house for the dying and destitute. I was looking at all these articles they had up about her and sort of this um, wall of memory. And one of the articles was a reporter, and the reporter was asking her the question um, in sort of an antagonistic way, what are you going to do, save everyone in the world? And her response to him was this, I'm not responsible for everyone in the world. I'm responsible for the one in front of me. And there was this sense of relief in terms of my own responsibilities, but more than that, and more importantly than that, it was in that moment that it dawned on me that what she's really describing is the effect of multiplication of ministry when everyone does their part. When you think about international organizations or global corporations or those sorts of things and the number of offices and employees they have and how much product they produce and what their revenue stream is, when you think about that in terms of the body of Christ, the body of Christ is the largest organism in the world. In fact, when you and I, right here in our own community and the ways that we give around the world, when we partner with what God is doing in our small way, it's actually all of us globally making a massive difference by caring for the one in front of us. And so when we partner with Amazon Outreach, we partner with Amazon Outreach ultimately to empower people there to minister to the one in front of them. When we partner with organizations here locally, we partner with them in order to minister to the one in front of them. When you go home this afternoon, there are ones who are in front of you that the Lord has called you to minister to. But when we all do that, when we join our gifting and our resources and our talent together, that is how the body of Christ makes the most significant difference in the world globally. In fact, Christian NGOs do more for the poor and the destitute, and the broken, and the endangered around the world than any government agency ever possibly could. Because we're better together. It's how the body of Christ was designed to function. You are not responsible for everything that comes through your news feed. But if we all took responsibility for the ones in front of us, we would join God in making a massive difference in the world. That's a good word, Pastor. I know. I would say amen if I was sitting out there with you. I mean, I would, personally. I'm just saying, you know. I want to invite you to stand. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. Can I just confess something? Every time I read this, I think about it in a cold climate survival context. (laughs) That situation you never want to be in in the woods where you're both wet and you got to get in a sleeping bag. And anyways, but he's really talking about partnership, relationship. 
But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. There's something powerful and supernatural about togetherness in the church. It's powerful and it's supernatural. I think for many of us, we believe that we're just supposed to go at it alone, pull myself up by my bootstraps. If you knew who I really was, you wouldn't like me, but you're actually called to be in partnership with other people in the body of Christ. You want to fully experience what he has. There is this element of really personal, intimate relationship that we're called into with one another. And then there's this partnership in the message of the gospel that we're called to with one another. And while Jesus is always present, in fact, we would call it the omnipresence of God, that Jesus was here before we showed up this morning, that he's everywhere at all times, that he's always present, that that's true, but there's also something unique about his presence when we're together. In fact, in Matthew 18, 19, it says, I also tell you this, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, My Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Was he there with you when you were alone? Yes, he was there with you when you were alone. But there's something unique and special that he's identifying about these moments when we come into agreement, when we partner in agreement, both in prayer, in giving, in talent, in all of those things. He's saying when that happens, I can't help but pour out my blessings on it so my prayer for you my prayer for us is that we would grow in our desire for unity for partnership God didn't place you in this body or in this community or in your family by accident you were placed there strategically And often I find inside the church when we're trying to figure out how to take the next steps, what God wants us to do, what he's calling us to, we're actually waiting on you to say yes to his invitation to join his body and what he's doing in the world because we're better together. So Jesus, as we bring this day to a close, these moments together to a close, I would ask that you would take your words sown in our hearts, mine included, and you would teach us what it means to join together, to be in unity, to bring our unique gifting, perspective, talent, resource to bear on the mission that you have for your church in the world. And may we discover that although you don't need us, you invite us and you would grant us the joy of joining you together in what you're doing in the world. And so may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. I invite the prayer ministry team to come. They're going to be available on both sides here today. If you have any prayer needs, they would be honored to join with you, to join their faith with yours together, asking God to move on your behalf. Um, If you're a guest with us, we invite you to turn in that guest card, uh, stop by the info center, show them the QR code, email, and let us partner with you, connect with you over the course of this next week.
Anything else? Next Sunday, we kick off our Christmas series, Home for the Holidays. Um, I would encourage you, invite some friends. We're going to be having a good time going through this series in the month of December. Hey, Church on the Rock, grace, peace to you. We will see you next Sunday. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.